So today I'm going to share with you uh, a message that I hope will elicit some response, elicit some uh, soul searching and some thinking. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to think back. I'm going to encourage you to think about childhood. Uh, just, I guess I'm putting a little trigger warning out there for anybody uh, in terms of if you think things and things get stirred up for you in a point where you're uncomfortable, please feel free to leave. That doesn't mean everyone that leaves is uncomfortable. Someone might just need to go to the toilet. So just want to give you that freedom and that openness. Uh, if you need to wander out, wander out. Uh, there'll be people around afterwards to chat to uh, if you would like to. So the message today that we're going to have a look at, we're going to have a look at two different scriptures, one from Colossians and one from the book of John. And we're going to have a look at, and the title of the message is called The Message of the Arrows. Um, and the reason for that, it's a chapter in a book that I really enjoy. It's a book called uh, The Sacred Romance. It's a great read. It's very poetic and big in its language. Uh, but what they're trying to get a hold of and put handles on is what it is to be in friendship and relationship and in love with God and to have God love you back. And so they call it the sacred romance and they talk about this kind of all things uh, are wrapped up in the way that we speak to and uh, engage with God. So the message of the arrows is part of that and we'll get to it in just a minute. Does anybody know what that is? The what? The Enneagram. Is, does anyone know what the Enneagram is? I have been. Everybody that I know is talking about the Enneagram. It is like the absolute latest and greatest personality identifier, personality test uh, thing that's out there at the moment. If you know anybody on social media, they will go and do the four-minute test and come out and say, I'm an Enneagram number two or I'm an Enneagram number three and the reason that I can't do this is because I'm a number six and the reason that I do all these things is because I'm a number four. It's a, a way and a means of trying to get a hold of and understand who we are and how we function, understand why it is that we make the decisions that we make, why it is that we feel the way that we feel, and Enneagram is a little bit like Myers-Briggs and those other type things. Uh, it's a, a way of trying to get a hold of something uh, that identifies a little bit of who we are and what we are. You listen out for Enneagram and you have a little look through your Facebook feed and people will be talking about it all over the place. Or maybe I've just got lots of psychology friends. <laughs> but we spend uh, a lot of time, well the people I know anyway, spend a lot of time <laughs> trying to figure out a little bit about who they are and why they function the way that they function. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I get angry at those things that I get angry at? Why am I bored when I'm in a relationship? Why do I think about leaving so quickly? Why is it that I'm never satisfied with this thing or that thing or this person or that person? The people that I spend time with ruminate about these sorts of things and spend quite a lot of time and quite a lot of effort and energy trying to pin down and understand something of why it is that they are the way that they are. Have you all done that? Have you thought those things? I'm not doing well this morning. <laughs> Enneagram? Do you think about your life? Fantastic. All right. Let's go from there. So th we think about our life and we think about sort of the why and the how and all that sort of stuff. This is a picture of the Swan River. It's an old one. For those of you who can't see very well, uh, that's Burswood over there. There's the races. 
Okay, and this is where the new stadium is over here. So the Swan River is in the background and the Swan River snakes its way. It snakes its way from up in the hills all the way down and out into the ocean. And the Swan River has formed itself and it's also been formed. And as the water makes its way along its path, there are obstacles in the way and there are things in the way. And those things, sometimes the water goes through them and over them. And other times the water has to go around them. The river shapes and is also shaped. There's things that happen in the river that it has to move around and there are other things that it can wash over and push through. We are shaped. You are shaped. The homes that you grew up in, the people that you were surrounded with, the families that you come from, the genetics that you have been given, these things shape you. There are some things that you move around and there are other things that you move through, but you are shaped. Your environment shapes you, your genetics shape you, and your experiences shape you. I'm sure that if we started to spend a bit of time and sat in groups and had some coffee, we could start to tell some stories about what has shaped us. What are those big experiences, those big events that have shaped you, that have formed part of your personality, formed part of your character? Hold that in mind. And we're going to have a look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And and I read this scripture a lot before communion. Uh, And the reason I do that is because I think it brilliantly encapsulates what it is to experience communion. It says this, Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So Paul is speaking to a church and he's trying to help them understand why it is that they experience life the way that they do. He says two things there. First thing he says is that you were alienated. We have a look at the word alienated. It speaks in the Greek not only of just being isolated within community, But it also depicts some sort of alienation within ourselves, some sort of separation, some sort of kind of brokenness. There's a little bit of, I'm here and a part of me's over there. He speaks about this alienation not only separates us in our thinking, it not only separates us individually, but also within community, within a body. We're kind of in, but we're not really in. You know what it's like when you're kind of on the periphery, you're kind of just a little bit outside of the group, or maybe you're completely outside of the group and behind a door and shut down and turn the phone off because you don't want to have to interact with people. Paul says that there's an alienation that happens, and that alienation happens in our thinking, in our mind, the way that we process the world, the way that we see the world, the way that we understand the world. There's something to do with our behavior And there's something to do with brokenness and sin that happens about a separation within us, both in ourselves and within our community. And that happens in the way that we formulate our ideas and the way that we see the world. It's profound stuff that he's talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. There's something about the way that we see ourselves and there's something about the way that we engage with people that is profoundly and deeply affected by sin brokenness and our behavior so we could say that we become isolated in our actions 
and also in our thoughts. So we separate off. We're not integrated within ourselves and we're not integrated within our communities, within our friendships, within our groups. Remember, we're talking about how it is that we're formed, how it is that we process and think about the world and how it is that we engage with people and we're trying to work out a little bit of why. What does form us? What does shape the river of our life, so to speak? I'll read you a quote from the the Sacred Romance book. He says, Our deepest convictions are formed without conscious effort, but the effect is a shift deep in our soul. Commitments form never to be in that position again, never to be hurt, never to be in that position again, never to know that sort of pain again. The result is such an approach to life that we often call our personality. If you listen carefully to your life, you may begin to see how it has been shaped by your unique arrows. The arrows you've known and the particular, con- the particular convic- convic- convictions that you have embraced as a result. The arrows also taint particularly and they are direct even in our spiritual life. So what he's saying is things form us and shape us that you have control over and also that you don't have control over. And that shapes your personality, but it also shapes how it is that you interact and relate with God. Okay, He calls that arrows. He speaks about that as arrows. We talk about the, the armor of God and we, we have the shield of faith and that extinguishes the fiery darts or the arrows of the enemy. So when we start talking about arrows, what are we talking about? These are the events that shape us. These are big things that happen to us. Um, I've told you this one before, but I'll, I'll tell you again. When I was a, a kid, when I was little, I, was, uh, we, I lived sort of down the road and around the corner from our school. And it was a private school that I went to. It was only really small. And uh, I was in my school uniform with my black shoes and my socks pulled up to my knees. And I'm walking home. I think that I had possibly just had detention because everyone else has gone and I was by myself. So detention had happened and I'm walking home from school. And as I'm walking home from school, back then I was a little fella and uh, I, was, I was actually pretty confident back then. There wasn't many kids in our school and I could run faster than everyone else and I was tougher than everyone else, so I thought. And I remember kind of, str- I, I was strutting home, you know, I was kind of a little bit of a peacock and I'm strutting home. And I see these other kids. And where I grew up, there was lots of bogans. Does everyone know what a bogan is? North of the river, we have bogans. And north of the river, these guys kind of had mullets, you know, the big long hair, black T-shirts. Some of them even had their names ironed on with white letters. Did anyone have one of those T-shirts? Me either. I didn't have one. I'm walking along and there's this group of kids. And for some reason, I don't quite know why, but for some reason, I made this funny noise. I went, ooh. And then I'm walking like this, walking home. And I turn around and before I know it, there's this circle of high school boys. And I'm on this lady's front lawn and there's this circle of high school boys around me. And I'm still completely okay. I was fully self-confident in ways that were unwise. I'm standing there and this kid gets off and his name's Jason. The reason I know his name's Jason is because everyone kept saying, Punch him in the head, Jason. Punch him in the head, Jason. And Jason said, what did you say, little guy? And I said, nothing, 
nothing. And then I turned around and looked and I saw his fist come right at my head and he clocked me right in the head. You know that sound? And I kind of went, what is going on? And then I, I fell on the ground and I looked up and then I noticed that all the boys had got their bikes and formed a circle around me. So I'm on the front lawn of this lady's house and I look up and I just realise that I actually can't get away. Now I grew up with lots of brothers and so they would beat me up all the time but I kind of knew within reason there was a limit, you know, because mum or dad would come or whatever it was. But I kind of looked up and I saw this guy and then he's hitting me and he's punching me and I looked up and I've just realised I cannot get out. And then I started to get a little bit scared. And then this guy was just wailing on me. I remember as a kid, I just remember thinking, this guy can really hurt me. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. That's what he would call, that's what Eldridge would call an arrow. Because something hit me in that moment, in my heart, and that event shaped me. That event in the river of my life is something that the water couldn't go over or through. The water went around. And I know it went around because I'm 42 and I remember it as clear as a bell. I can remember where I was. I can remember what I did. I can remember everything about that event. And every time I go back to my old house, I drive past that lady's front lawn and it's the first thing I remember when I drive past that. That is an arrow. Because I know that I went home, I ran home, and I remember thinking, I can't let anyone in my family know I've just been beaten up. Because in our family, if you're beaten up, that means that you're less than. So in our time, back in those days, you know, you kind of, if you were a man, you were the boss. Amen? Men, do you remember? Do you remember those days? The men were the bosses and I grew up in a house with eight bosses and I was the littlest one. And so I didn't tell anybody that I'd just been beaten up because I didn't want them to think bad of me. I didn't want them to think less of me. I was the youngest always trying to punch above my weight. So I ran home, I splashed all water in my face because it was all red because I'd just been hit by this kid and I'm splashing water in my face and I'm shaking like this and I don't know what's going on. And I remember for the first time in my life, in any serious way, I felt scared. Not like a little bit scared, like going on a ride scared. But you know that kind of scared where you're sitting there and you're thinking, flipping heck, the world is different now. Flipping heck, I can be hurt. Flipping heck, there there are people that will actually try and hurt me and injure me. There's nothing I can do about that. That's an arrow. That's something in the river of my life that the river has gone around. And I'm sure that if you and I sat down over coffee and you were inclined and you started to tell me the stories of your life, there would be stories like this. They could be bullying at school. They could be bullying from parents. They could be exclusion. They could be not being chosen for something. Maybe for you, you just weren't regarded in your family. Maybe no one even really cared. Maybe no one cared enough to even pick on you or hurt you. Maybe you were, maybe you were someone who experienced death, loss, parents separating or divorcing. 
whatever that may be, you will have stories of arrows that have come in and hit you in the heart. Of things that have sat in your river and your river has gone around them instead of gone over them or through them. This is the picture of the bicycle tree in Vashun Island in Washington. Many stories about how the bicycle ended up being in the tree. Uh, There's all sorts of different stories. But a team from Como News in Seattle tracked down the actual owner. They sent this news agency, sent a team of reporters to try and find the genuine article about this story. And what they found out was uh, a young boy named Donnie Putz was the owner of this bike. Donnie was the sheriff of the town that he grew up in. And what happened to Donnie was when he was nine years old in 1954, a fire went through his house and destroyed everything. His father was in the house and his father died trying to fight the fire. Donnie and his family lost everything. And so the townsfolk all came around and generously cared for Donnie and his family and his mum and people donated things and gave him things. Donnie's bike was lost in the fire and so somebody donated a bike to him. He was given this bike and he absolutely hated it because it was a girl's bike. And as he rode it around, his mates gave him a hard time. So what Donnie did one day was he rode into the forest, into the bush down the road from his house and he put the bike as high up in the tree as he possibly could. He found a fork in the tree. He put the bike in there and he ran off and told his mum it had been stolen. Eventually the tree grew around the bike. And now that bike is a part of that tree. I tell you that story because the arrows that hit us, we can pretty easily grow flesh around them. The arrows that hit us can embed themselves into our story. They can embed themselves into our lives. And those arrows become part of us. Those arrows become part of us like the bike is a part of the tree. It's not supposed to be there. It's an anomaly. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But it's in there and it's in there to stay. And these arrows grow flesh around them. And we live with them. We go through our everyday life with them. We, as Eldridge said, we start to make decisions about who we are and how we engage with people based on the bikes that are sticking out of the tree of us. Does that make sense? Being very metaphorical today, but go with me, church. Let's hold on to that. That's just another view. John chapter 8 tells us this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Who's he talking about? Who's Jesus speaking about? The devil, Satan. Say it to me, church. Satan. Yeah. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there was no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is speaking about evil. And he says that as evil comes around our story, as evil speaks to our story, however you perceive evil, whether you think there's a a literal devil or not, doesn't make any difference. What he's saying is he's describing the function 
of evil. He's describing the function of the accuser. He's describing the function of the chaos creature that we spoke about in the book of Genesis. This creature who comes and creates disorder and chaos in amongst what God tries to bring into order. We say it another way, that our arrows come with a message. When you get hit with an arrow, that arrow will have a message to it. For me, as I ran home, the message that came to me as I laid in bed that night and I laid in my bed and I pulled my blankets up, I was absolutely terrified. And for me, that moment changed my life because I felt frightened. And not a little bit scared, I was terrified that this guy was going to get me again. I was terrified that he knew what school I was at. I was terrified that he knew what, where I lived. And I was even more terrified to tell my family that I'd been bashed up because I was frightened of what they would think of me. Do you hear how the arrow comes with a message? Do you hear how we try and make sense of a trauma? Do you hear how we try and put some sort of meaning around something that doesn't have meaning? Jesus is telling us that the person or the thing or the force or the evil behind those messages is the father of lies. And quite often, the message of the arrows is actually more harmful than the actual traumatic event itself. Because we take those messages in and we generally tend to hold them to ourselves and we generally tend to because they came with such a thump and with such pain. Generally, it's pretty embarrassing. We don't want to tell anyone about it. We take those messages in and we hold them close inside and we refer to them as we're going through life because these messages start to tell us and define our value and our worth in life. I got frightened that day. I lost confidence that day. The message of the arrows was loud. As I got a bit older and got into high school, loved playing cricket. I've told you this story before, but I'll tell you again. Loved playing cricket. I was the only one in my family that, uh, that played sport. Everyone else worked, and I didn't. <laughs> I worked a little bit, but I played sport as well. And I was starting to play cricket and starting to do a ride at cricket and I would ask my dad to come. Dad and I used to do three things together which was uh, really special and precious to me. We would do sort of housework, sort of fix gardens and all that sort of stuff on the weekend in the morning and then in the afternoon we would fish. We would go fishing which was wonderful and then during the week, sort of most nights, we would go out and play cricket in the, in the, on the driveway. Wonderful times. And I couldn't bowl very fast. And Dad taught me how to spin bowl. And no one back then was bowling spin. So I'm like the only kid. And bowling spin just meant I bowled big lollipop balls that these 12, 13, 14-year-old boys would see and their eyes would light up. And they'd come dancing down the pitch, smacking it as far as they could. All our fielders were out on the boundary and they would just take catches. It was a great strategy. It worked really well. So I'm starting to get some wickets and things are starting to happen. And I said to Dad, why don't you come watch a game? Because this game's at, I played for Belga and it was Belga Reserve. I said, this game's just around the corner. Do you want to come? And he said, don't know, we'll see. Okay, so anyway, um, there we are. Our team's batting and my friend was batting and he was doing really, really well. And he was on like 99 and my dad walks down. 
dad walks down and I was so excited to see him. I ran over to him and said, so good you're here and sit down. I said, the guy batting out there at the moment, his name's Daniel and he's my friend and, and he's on 99. And then everyone went, oh, and you hear this sound and the wickets are all on the ground and my friend's walking in and the coach is walking in and I'm laying down on the, on the sort of embankment with my dad and the coach says, Aaron! And he's about halfway in. And I kind of went like that. And I ran over to the coach and he says, we could hear you say to your dad that Daniel was on 99. And once he heard you say that when he was on 99, he was distracted. And that's why he got out. And I just went, oh, my dad's over there. The coach has just absolutely ripped me apart. And I'm trying, you know, when you want to bawl your eyes out and you're trying your hardest to stop, you go, you're right? Yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. I walk back and my dad said to me, what happened? Nothing, nothing, nothing. He said, did you get in trouble? No, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I was sitting there with him. My dad waited about 15 minutes and then he snuck off. So I did the, I did the rest of the game. It was just terrible. Went home, and he didn't say anything to me. I didn't say anything to him. That's an arrow. That's an arrow. And not only was it an arrow, but the message with that arrow was, don't bring people to stuff, because they'll see you fall flat on your face. They'll see you fail. Don't bring people to stuff. So some of my mates would invite their friends and girlfriends and to come to training and to come to games. Not me. I never invited anyone to anything, ever. I didn't even tell anyone anything was on because the message of the arrow was don't bring people because when you muck up, they'll all watch. That's shaped part of my life. Time goes on and I find this girl who thinks I'm great and we start dating and she got blonde hair and I was playing basketball and I was a very average at best basketball player and she says, can I come and watch? What do you think I say? Nah, you're busy and, and she's insistent. Can I come No, No, you don't want to come and watch. There's a bicycle in my tree. Does that make sense? There's a bicycle in my tree and she's saying, I want to come and share this with you. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. Because once you see me fail or fall or miss or whatever, you're not going to want to be all that keen anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you start to realize that you have bicycles in your tree? Do you start to realize the obstacles in the river that the river is moving around? These things are arrows and these things have messages and these messages often, always, are not true. Because they take one tiny aspect and the father of lies inflates and whispers and accuses And normally we are so vulnerable. We are so vulnerable. 
And normally the accusation or the lie from the father of lies feels so true because it damns us and condemns us. And we feel so low at that point, we just take it and say, yes, I am terrible. And we take it and we bring it in and we go, this is what is most true about me. Amen? Do you know these stories? Do you know these words? Do you know these phrases? Do you remember these events? Because they formulate part of who you are. And for so long, I've allowed the father of lies and the bicycles in my tree to define who I am. To play a significant role in saying what I can and can't do. So anytime I want to step forward and anytime I want to go on to the next thing or the bigger thing or the the next challenge, these bicycles in my tree, these arrows start to make themselves known and I get frightened. Get frightened. When we uh, finished ministry at Katanning, I said to my mum and dad, do you want to come to our last service in Katanning? I said, Dad, do you want to come to my last service in Katanning? He says, no, son, I don't really want to come. And I said, do you know what? I really want you to come. You've never heard me speak. You've never heard me preach. Why don't you come? And him and mum said, we've got this on and that on and we can't and we're busy and all that sort of stuff. So eventually I went to him and said, I really want you to come. I've paid for you to come and stay the night at this place. Uh, We've spent the money, and Dad loved a bargain. I said, we've spent the money, and if you don't come, it'll sit there with no one in it. And they came. And for me, it was this significant moment. I'm not going to let this bicycle in a tree, I'm not going to let this arrow, and I'm not going to let the message of this arrow define this part of me any longer. And they came, and it was I was packing myself like you wouldn't believe. But it was a wonderful moment of redemption. And the people there were so kind and generous to us. And he heard it. And he came up to me afterwards in a real moment of honesty. And he said, son, you've done really well. And I could have fallen over at that point. But these things speak to us. So what do we do with them? John 8, 31, 36 says, This is Jesus again speaking. To the Jews who have believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will praise the Lord. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Read with me, church. Verily I tell you, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. That's interesting language there, isn't it? If we go back to the Colossians text, he talks about being isolated and lonely and all that. And here Jesus is talking about the truth. And when we have the truth and we know the truth, we have a place and we're in a family. It's belonging language. Amen? Belonging language is the opposite to isolation language. Do you see that parallel? Jesus is saying when you know the truth, the truth will bring you together. There's a coming together that happens. 
And in that coming together, in that cohesion, there is a profound sense of freedom. Please hear me, that does not mean that everything goes away in an instant. And that doesn't mean that all your issues are prayed away or all you have this miraculous encounter and everything's gone. That might happen to you for an issue on an occasion that might be a miraculous event. But for the most part, for most people, they have an exodus experience. And as Jesus is telling a story, all the commentators say that he is drawing on the exodus experience for these people as he's telling them there's this freedom there and he's saying that this freedom is like the freedom that Israel experienced from Egypt. This freedom was a miraculous moment and then this miraculous moment was a lifetime of struggle through the desert. Amen? Struggle through the desert. It was a moment of God's reality. It was a moment of truth. It was a moment of encounter. And then you had to get up the next day, pack up camp, find water and trust and hope that maybe God would give you manna the next day because you had to pack up camp, get up and go the next day and the next day and the next day. Freedom is available, but it's a freedom that requires work and struggle and pushing through the wilderness and pushing through the desert. Freedom is available. We do not have to be defined forever by the wounds that we have. We do not have to be defined forever by the bicycles in our tree and by the objects in the river and by the arrows that we have sustained. These things will stay with us But instead of there being a big arrow sticking out of you as you walk around, there can be a scar. And it can be a bit tender, but it's no longer defining the whole of who you are. It's no longer, the message is no longer as true as it used to be. There is freedom. And freedom comes from Jesus. Freedom comes from knowing that you are loved, from knowing that you're accepted, and from knowing that the truth of you comes because of what Jesus Christ did, not because of the messages that the arrows have told you who you are. So we're going to have communion. And as we have communion, as it comes around, I'm going to read you our passage from Colossians again. So just hold your communion. If my helpers could come forward. As you hold your communion in your hand, we take communion because Jesus called us to remember who we are and to remember whose we are. Colossians 1.21 again says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish, and free from accusation. Do you hold these symbols and emblems in your hand? Just if you can, maybe think of an arrow story. Maybe think of something difficult that's happened. Maybe think of a bicycle in a tree for you. And if you can, think about maybe the message that accompanied that event. And as you think about and contemplate that message, I want you
want to read you what the Bible says. That through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The event happens and we can't stop them. But the messages no longer have to define who we are. And the messages no longer have to tell us how we are and who we are in this world. Because the Bible tells me that I am without blemish and I am free from accusation. Let's take communion. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, I thank you that you love us. And that's not just a throwaway line. I thank you, God, that you were with every person sitting in this room as we encountered and experienced the piercing of our arrow stories. You were, you were with me on that front lawn. And you were with me at night when I was frightened at home. And God, I'm sure you were with me as I was starting to believe the messages that came with those wounds. Father, it doesn't have to stop there. It doesn't have to be that forever. You speak to us of a, a new life, of an of a overcoming, of an overthrowing, of a love that never quits, a love that never gives up. This is the definer of who we are. This creates the foundation for which our personality and our heart can be built on. Help us to be able to step aside from the messages of our pain, the messages of our arrows. And I pray, God, that we are able to listen to the voice of the Spirit, the voice that tells us that we are without spot and blemish, the voice that encourages us away from sin and brokenness and moving towards wholeness and healing and restoration, serving others, being generous in our spirit. God, I pray and ask that we will allow your voice to be our defining voice. We will allow your scriptures to tell us who we are and our place in this world. Give us an awareness of when the father of lies is whispering in our ears and in our faces and help us to chuck that away. Help us to throw it away. Help us to put it in the fire and allow us, God, the the presence and the power to apply your scripture and the words of Jesus into our hearts and in our souls and our lives. We pray all of these things because you're good. We pray all of these things because you've encouraged us and commanded us to believe in who you are. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you, church.